right, if you guys have your Bibles, you can open to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. And we're closing it out tonight all the way to the end of the chapter, chapter, geez, chapter, verse 40. Now tonight, it brings us to the end of what we've been studying through of what is famously called the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Believe it or not, but we have now come to what is our eighth study within just one chapter of the Bible. And to be honest, we could have gone longer. The Bible is so rich and deep, uh, but for our purposes here for tonight, uh, we will end and land the plane today. Now, we've truly learned throughout our series that faith is not just a belief, uh, but it truly is a trust and reliance upon the Lord. Remember that faith is not an object that you pick up and keep. It is a verb. It's an action. Remember the story we started out with just about two months ago, the story of Blondin and the tightrope. You guys remember that one? Well, I'm not going to rehearse it for you. You can go back and listen to it. But we, we've been learning about faith all along the way. The author of Hebrews started out with that great description. Look back at verse 1, and maybe it'll jog your memory. Verse 1 tells us that, that it is this faith that is the very proof or substance to our hearts, to our inner being. And it's the conviction or the confidence of those things that we know in his word, but we have not yet physically seen. That faith bridges the gap, if you will. If you remember, we moved on to then verse three, that tells us that it is this very faith, this confidence, this substance that brings the fundamental understanding of the world that we live in and how it was created. Uh, we spent three weeks, three out of the eight studies, we spent on the life of Abraham, the father of faith. We learned through his life that faith is what enables us to obey God. We learned that faith is what causes us to trust God with the whys and the hows of life. And then last week, we looked at Moses, right? Moses, we looked at him, how he was this example of uh, of, of how faith produced courage, sacrifice, and deliverance. Now, we must realize that all these Old Testament examples, whether the ones we went over or, or other, other ones in Scripture that we did not get to, they're not just cute stories. They are helpful testimonies. They are true accounts of what really happened. You see, when we pick up the Bible and we read of these Old Testament saints, God chose to record something that happened in their life and preserve it for all these years so that we might grow. It's all for our learning. We looked at early on this verse in Romans, Romans 15, 4, that reminds us of why we study the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered that? Right? If we have the new... And that's where Jesus is at. That's where the gospels are and, and how we're to live as New Testament believers. Why do we have to even read the Old Testament? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of them is that God says, hey, I, I preserved what happened for your learning. For whatever things were written before the Old Testament were written for our learning. 
that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Listen, when we study the Old Testament, we do it for our learning. We do it that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures that we might have hope. You see, as we read of men like Abraham or women like Sarah or Deborah or Moses, whoever it might be in the Bible, these lives should then produce in us, in our own life, the endurance to keep running our individual races. It should encourage us. You see, they had their race of faith and they ran it and they're done now. Uh, They're on the other side of the finish line, but you and I, we're not done yet. Uh, We still have however many days God has seen fit to give us. And so today as we move from the Exodus, what we talked about last week, where it was by faith that the people crossed over the Red Sea, where it was in dry land. Well, now today, we fast forward about 40 years or so after the people had to wander in the wilderness. And this brings us now to the city of Jericho. As today, we're gonna focus on two main characters. One of them, his name is Joshua, and the other is a woman named Rahab. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to this conclusion of Hebrews 11. Lord, though it's the conclusion of the hall of faith in regards to the Old Testament, Lord, we know that the hall of faith is still open, that every day there are men and women, boys and girls, who cross the finish line of life of their faith, and Lord, they make it up, in a sense, to the hall of faith. God, we pray for us today that our own individual walks, Lord, would be characterized by trusting you in the small things, in the big things, and everything in between. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Okay, so the first thing that we're looking at is the faith around Jericho, all right? The faith around Jericho. We find this in verse 30. It's rather short, and you can either look on the screen, or my preference would be that you look in your Bibles. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. You guys know the story about the walls of Jericho? Man, it's a wild, wild story. It's one we might be used to, or we've heard, or again, we've maybe you know, read the picture book when we were younger, or saw the Veggie Tales uh, episode, or whatever it might have been. But you see, we find this event that is referred to in verse 30, we find it in Joshua chapter 6. And so those of you that have your Bibles open, I'd love you to mark your place in Hebrews 11 and turn to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua 6. You leave your tassel in Hebrews 11, we will be back, but turn to Joshua 6. This verse mostly refers to the faith of Joshua. Though he's not mentioned, when you go back and read the story, the leader of Israel at the time was Joshua. Moses was now dead in heaven. He had finished his race, unable to cross into the promised land, but the Israelites who followed him are also mentioned here. Uh, He directed, but they followed. 
Now, the story goes of where we left off last time, right? We left off last time with the Red Sea, where they cross on dry land. And uh, I don't know how much you know of the story, but after the people cross over, things don't go so well. When they finally get to the border of the land that God promised them, and even that was a struggle, they began worshiping false gods, all kinds of other crazy stuff, but God had grace. And now they're finally at the border of the promised land. They were once slaves, but now they're at the promised land. You see, for 40 years after crossing the Red Sea, they had to wander. Why? Because when they got to the promised land, though God had delivered them, they did not trust him to carry them in. They did not trust his protection, his provision. And so God would not allow any of those men or women who openly disobeyed him to enter the promised land. So what happened? They get, think about this. They get to the border of the land and God says, time to turn around and take a walk. 40 years. Why 40 years? Because it took 40 years for everyone who was an adult and that was in the mix other than Caleb and Joshua to die out. You see, God wanted the younger generation who did not have that disobedience to take the land. Now, unfortunately for the man named Moses, unfortunately for him, during those 40 years, there came a time where he got frustrated and misrepresented God. And so God as well would not allow him to enter the promised land. And so the story goes that God raised up Joshua to take his place as the leader of the Israelites. And so now they are there again at the border of the promised land, 40 years after the Exodus, after the Red Sea crossing, now with a new generation. And the only two who are left that were adults are two men. One of them is named Joshua, and the other is a man named Caleb. They cross over the Jordan. They cross into the promised land yet again on dry ground. And by the hand of God, they set up these memorial stones to remember what God had done. They're about to begin to take the land that God had promised to them. And it's at this point that something significant happens, something extremely significant. Now, chapter six, like I said, is where Jericho is recorded, that story of the walls coming down. But oftentimes we can read the story and miss what happened right before. Because I believe if we, if what happens right before didn't take place, I don't know if Jericho would have gone the same way. Notice in your Bibles, you should be in Joshua 6. Simply look back to chapter 5. And right before that, right before chapter 6 is verses 13 through 15. And notice here, they're getting ready to take Jericho. And it says this, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite with his sword drawn in his hand. Notice the capitals. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot 
for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. What a scene, right? I mean, what's taking place there? Joshua's ready to go into battle. He sees some, what he thought was just some dude, and he sees him with a sword drawn, not, not in, his, in its sheath, but drawn, ready to go. And Joshua goes up to him and says, you for us or are you for them? And I love the response. You see, Joshua at this time, he didn't know whose presence he was in yet. And so the commander of the Lord's army responds and says, no. Doesn't answer his question. And says here, as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And it's in that moment that Joshua begins to realize, I know whose presence I'm in. And we're told that he bows himself, he worships, and he asks an important question. He says, what do you want me to do? You see, who was this commander of the Lord's army? Was it some mighty angel? No, this was the Lord himself. This was the second person of the Godhead. This was the pre-incarnate Christ, or what is known, big word, as a Christophany. And you might say, Joel, what did you just say? It is when Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, you'll find this as an angel of the Lord, and you'll notice the word angel is capitalized. Notice in your Bibles that the word he and commander is all capitalized. Why? Because this indicates to us that this is not just an angel, but it is the Lord himself, the commander. God commands his own armies. You see, at this moment, this was so critical because Joshua, Joshua was made very aware that he was not the commander, but rather simply a soldier ready to take on a command. This encounter gave Joshua such confidence knowing who fought for Israel. You see, I'm sure at this moment, Joshua had a lot on his, soul, on his shoulders. Moses was now gone, dead with Jesus in heaven. And so now the whole nation, what would feel like, fell on him. But you see, Jesus reminds him, he says, listen, you might be the boots on the ground, but I am the strength, I'm the power. And then we come to what verse 30 references. Now let's read Joshua 6, verses 1 through 5, the actual direction that God gives Joshua. Okay, so he has this experience the day before from what it seems like. And now it's time to take on Jericho. But he gets some instructions. Look there, Joshua 6, look at verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. See, at this point, Jericho was on lockdown. They heard that Israel was coming. There was no one in, no one out. And in God's view, notice 
This is God's instruction to Joshua, okay? What we just read. Notice that in God's viewpoint, the battle was already won. That's why he said, I have given it into your hands. Past tense. Did they take Jericho yet? No. But in God's view and in God's direction, he says, listen, I gave it to you. All you got to do is the following. And what was the direction given by God? I want you to think about this for a moment. There are potentially millions of people within the camp of Israel. Their army would have been hundreds of thousands of trained men ready to take on the promised land and those who lived in it. And God's direction is this. They were to walk about the city all the way around with the men of war in the front, the priests in the back with the Ark of the Covenant once a day for six days. On the seventh day, they were to walk around the city seven times. And at that point, the priests were to blow their trumpets. And then when everyone hears the trumpets, everyone is to shout with a great shout. And God said, then the walls will fall down flat. The story goes on that they obeyed and it happened just as God said. Picture this for a moment, okay? Before, before they obeyed, what was Joshua thinking? The text shows no pushback or delay. He didn't say, God, like, uh, is this like a military action? Like, are we like trying to like confuse them and then we're gonna like go in at night? No, God doesn't give anything like that. What were the priests thinking? Imagine Joshua coming to the priest and say, okay, look, this is what's gonna happen. Men of war in the front and uh, you, the priest, you're gonna be in the back, okay? And, uh, and this is what we do. Imagine the men of war, people who are trained for battle. Joshua says, listen, you can put your swords away for now. Uh, we're not going to try to break down the wall. We're going to take a walk. Imagine the men of war that morning when they're getting ready to go out to battle, which is really just to walk around the wall. Imagine them telling their wives, oh, hey, honey, what are you going to do today? Yeah, um, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna walk around the wall. Oh, are you going like, to find like a weak spot? No, no, no. We're just going to walk just, just once, and then I'll be home. It's going to be a short day today. Except on the seventh day, it's going to be a little bit longer. I got to walk seven times. What I want to know is what were the people inside the city thinking? In Jericho, we're told that in, in other parts that there were houses like on top and around the wall. So they knew they see hundreds of thousands of people walking around their wall. Not hundreds of thousands, but they see them camped out and they see a group of people walking around their wall. Were they wondering, like, is this like a scare tactic? Are these people like nuts? Like, what's, what's going on? What was that shout like? Like, when they finally shout, like, how loud was that? These are the questions that I have. I mean, it took time, right? It didn't happen all in one day, day in, day out for a week. You know, I wonder about halfway through, day four, what, what was the conversation like? Was it like, all right, we're walking around again? I, I, just, I just wonder. But listen, I want to paint that picture for you because the reality is, is that this took faith. They had just come off the heels of being taken care of by God for 40 years in the wilderness. The Bible says that when they got to the end of that 40-year journey, that their clothes were not worn out 
and their shoes had no holes after 40 years. God had taken care of them. They had just experienced God parting the Jordan River and walking through on dry ground. You see, this faith that they displayed was founded upon the fact that they could look back at their life and say, God is always taking care of me. But faith was required on the part of Joshua leading them, trying to explain to them, this is what God said. I know it sounds a little wild, but this is what God commanded. But it also required faith on part of the Israelites who had to follow, right, what Joshua said. I want you to note this down. God loves to do big things by small means. This is a principle that we find throughout the scripture and is highlighted in stories like the walls of Jericho. I believe that God loves to do this. Why? Why why does God love to do big things by small means? It's because he will get the glory. He will get the glory. You see, it was clear that it wasn't the method of walking but it was the power of God as they responded in faith-filled obedience. You see, it wasn't the fact that there was like some hidden trick of like you walk around the walls and this will happen and it's gonna like mess up the ground and eventually, no, it it had nothing to do with their walking. It's not that they walk so good or that they shouted so loud, right? Some people who don't wanna believe in miracles, they wanna say, well, if we kind of know about like ancient architecture, if they walked around the walls in a certain methodology, and then they get to this point where they shout, the vibrations, no, it didn't have to do with the walking or the shouting. It had to do with the fact that they obeyed God and that God then did what he said he would do. It wasn't by might. It wasn't by power, but it was by his spirit. You know, Gideon is mentioned a couple verses down from this. You guys know anything about the story of Gideon? God did something similar through his leading as well. With only a 300 soldier army doing something ridiculous, ridiculous, with pots and fire, conquered a great victory over a massive army. God loves to do this. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 5 says, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, God wants our faith not in what we can try to make work, but in, the pow- but in his power. You see, God could have done this without them walking around, right? Did they have to walk around? Did that activate God's power? No, it was their faith that then that then God honored. But I believe that God wanted them to be a part of it. He could have just, right? He could have blown up the whole city. He could have nuked them. It could have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone from heaven, dunzo. But that's not the case. He wanted them to be a part of it. You see, this was the first step taking the promised land, but certainly not the last. God wanted to make it clear that it would be God who would fight the battle. But listen, this is key. They had to walk in the victory that God already said was done. God was doing a work in them, but God now desired to do a work through them. 
Do you guys see the parallel to the life of a Christ follower? See, the Bible says that the war has already been won. The victory is ours in Christ. It's already been paid for and delivered at the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, we must grab hold of the victory by faith. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I want you to picture this. You and I simply have to walk, you guys get it? Walk in that victory that God has already won on our behalf. He doesn't require talent. He doesn't require ability. He doesn't want good works. He just says, walk in the victory that I have supplied and I will supply. Think about it. The Bible tells you and I that we are to walk in him, that we are to walk in the spirit, that we are to walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us. Are you guys getting it? Sometimes it might seem ridiculous to us. It might seem silly. Sometimes what God asks us to do might seem counterproductive. It might seem, well, why would I do that when I got to get out there and do this? It might not make sense. It might seem small and insignificant, but this is the question. Are you, everyone look at me, are you willing to do the little things? Because I believe if Joshua and the Israelites said, no, God, like if you asked us to like climb over the wall and tear it down one by one with our bare hands, we would do it. But you just want us to walk around the wall and you're going to do it? Ah, it just seems, that seems ridiculous. The day-to-day things that seem small and insignificant. Like, you mean I'm, I'm going to read my Bible for 10 minutes and it's really going to like make a difference? I'm going to pray. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You see, God has showed us his power because God showed his power here because of their faith led to obedience. That even when they didn't understand how this was going to work, their work had no effect on the situation other than it was obedience. But it enabled God to work on their behalf. And so listen, God has asked us to pray. God has asked us to be kind. God has asked us to do good. God has asked us to study his word. He's asked us to uh, be at peace with all men. He's asked us to put others before ourselves. And you might say, well, if God like asked me to like go and be a missionary, like I would do it. If God said, go and take a bullet for that person, I would do it. I would do the big things. But what about the small things? You might say, God, I'll do big things for you. But listen, God will give you nothing big until he sees your faithfulness in the small. And so if you can't even handle walking around a wall, you can't, you can't consistently spend time in the word of God. What makes you think God will ever use you? He wants to. He, desi- he wants you to be a part of it. But listen, he's looking at the small things. He's looking at the things that in your perspective, it's worthless. I don't see that making any difference in my life. But God says, it is in those very things that my power will be shown in your life. And so the question for us is what? will be our response. 
So verse 30 describes for us the faith around Jericho. But verse 31 takes us within the walls. Takes us within the walls. Faith in Jericho. Not that we put our faith in Jericho, but inside Jericho. Look at verse 31 in your Bibles. You guys have your Bibles open still? So we're going to be back in Joshua, but flip back to Hebrews 11 or just look on the screen because we're going to be in Joshua pretty quick. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So verse 31 is very connected to the story of Jericho and Joshua. That's why it's mentioned here. Rahab is intertwined within what God was doing outside of the city. God was also doing something in the city. Let me summarize for you Joshua chapter 2, okay? Joshua 2, you can note it down. Joshua 6 is where we find the story of Jericho. Joshua 2 is the precursor where Rahab comes on the scene for the first time. This is before what happens, what we just read. So this is Joshua 2, a few chapters earlier. We're told that before they cross over the Jordan and begin to take on Jericho, that the children of Israel, they send out two spies into the land. Okay, so they, they, spend out, they send out two spies into Jericho. It's not war, it's just spying. And when they're there, a word gets around that there are spies in the land. And so they begin looking for them. And they find this lady, this when it says harlot, she was a prostitute, all right? This is someone who sells their body for money. Big deal, okay? She, she, was, she was, would have been low on the totem pole of all the people, even in a pagan land of Jericho. But this lady, we're told that she hid the spies, that rather than exposing them and, and, and telling them, uh, we're told that she hides them. Let's read the story there in Joshua 2 verses 8 through 14. Okay, let me read it to you. And you can turn there. Now, before they lay down, these are the, these are the spies that she's hiding of Israel. She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, and notice, this is her reasoning. Why would she do that? Why would she, why would she become a traitor in her own land? Well, verse 8, I know that the Lord has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. They're terrified. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years earlier. Like we've heard about that. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, uh, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God. This is a pagan prostitute in Jericho. He is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token." And spare my father and my mother and my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. You guys get the picture? She, she makes this deal in a sense. 
She says, listen, we've been hearing about you guys, and I believe that your God is the God of heaven. And so listen, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say anything, but when you guys come in and you take Jericho, I want you to remember me. And so in Joshua 6, the walls come down, and verses 22 and 25 tell us what happens with Rahab. When the walls fall down, Joshua commands, they say, okay, let's, let's go, right? Right when the walls come down, they say, okay, well, let's go, let's go take the city. And so Joshua, though, commands them to spare Rahab and her family. And we're told from this point forward that this woman Rahab now dwells with the children of Israel. You see, Rahab was a prostitute. There were probably people, even in Jericho, with a better moral past. Yet, it did not matter who she was or what she had done. She had faith in the God of Israel. Out of the whole city, it was, there was only one family saved, Rahab and those with her. The story of Rahab shows us that God shows no partiality. He plays no favorites. From what we see from Jesus in the New Testament, I think, I think God loves when the least likely put their faith in him. Note down Matthew 21. Talking to some religious leaders, notice what Jesus said to them. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots, that's what Rahab was, believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. You see, you and I must not become, in a sense, so religious or so acquainted with how we know life should be that we look at someone and say, God could never. You see, this woman, Rahab, not only was, seemed to be converted that day, but she actually plays a special role within the lineage or genealogy of the Messiah. Don't turn there now, but just note it down. Matthew 1, verse 5. You know in Matthew chapter 1, the very verse, first chapter of the New Testament, there's a list of names all about Jesus' genealogy. Well, she actually gets a shout out. She gets mentioned. Why? Because this woman, Rahab, who displayed her faith in an amazing way, she goes on, so now Jericho's done. All those people are dead. God is now making his way through the land, and Rahab's now becoming part of the Israelites. She marries a guy named Salmon. I know it's a funny name, but he, she marries a guy named Salmon. I'm sure there's something a little fishy about that. But um, so, so Ruth and Salmon gave birth to a guy named Boaz. Boaz was the great-grandfather, who then married Ruth, was the great-grandfather of some guy named David. You see, <laughs> I love the gas. This obviously shows, listen, that, that she left that life of prostitution. She gets married and now gets placed within the genealogy. She is like Jesus is like great, 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 something a million great-grandmothers, okay? Rahab, of all people. Not an Israelite. 
But uh, I don't know what you call a, someone from Jericho, a Jerichoian, but James 2. She also, listen, not only is she mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, not only is she mentioned in the genealogy, but she also gets mentioned by James talking about faith. Like she becomes some, such an example. James 2 verse 25 says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out another way, she's used as an example. For as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The Bible says, listen, Rahab didn't just say, I won't say anything. No, she did what she said she believed. She said, I believe that your God is the God of heaven and earth. And so I'm going to hide you. I'm going to send you out another way and let you escape. See, listen, guys, no one is too far gone. You have some crazy uncle that believes in aliens and, and believes that the Bible was, you know, corrupted. And listen, he's not too far gone. Un uncle Tony's not too far gone, okay? I don't know who Uncle Tony is. But listen, whoever it is, listen, you're not too far gone. You might say, well, I did this or I did that. Listen, if you simply put your faith in Christ you will be redeemed. Remember what Jesus said. He did not come for the righteous, but he came for sinners to call them to repentance. And that includes you. That includes Uncle Tony. That includes the drug addict or the prostitute or the whatever it might be, fill in the blank. God will take that person and if they're willing, put them into history or his story his plan, and his purposes. And so today we, we've seen the faith around Jericho. We saw the faith in Jericho. And the author ends this chapter wishing he only had more time to tell of all the stories of faith. There's much more to tell, but for the author of Hebrews, he only had so much parchment He'll be in so much room to write. And he says this, look at verse 32, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. You can go back to Hebrews 11. We won't turn back to Joshua, I promise. Verse 32 says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, maybe a reference to Daniel, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. Stick with me, verse 36. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves, of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, 
that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Much more to tell. And time would fail us to look at every single Old Testament example of faith. This kind of reminds me of how John closes out the gospel. Do you guys remember this? John 21, 25. John basically gets to this point of his, of his gospel and he says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Meaning that what we even have of the gospels is only a fraction of what Jesus actually did. It's only the part we need to know for now. But what more is there to say? The answer is a lot. You see, this was 2,000 years ago that this was written. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, there's not enough time to talk about all that God did through men and women of the Old Testament. But what about now? Because there has been 2,000 years of church history of people walking in that very example. Have you guys ever thought about what we'll be doing in heaven? There's a lot of answers to that question, but I think one of them is I think you and I are going to sit down and listen to the stories of faith of people who lived throughout the ages. The author goes on to mention by name a few familiar and a few unfamiliar names. Some even who would, you would think would be unlikely. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. You see, I take this kind of as an invitation that we should be going back and not just looking at the ones in the hall of faith, but the others that are mentioned throughout the Bible. Speaks of awesome things that they did, right? That, that some of them subdued kingdoms and stopped the mouths of lions and they suffered for their faith as well. They're persecuted. The author makes it clear that the world was not worthy of them. You see, and those are the Old Testament saints, and they have their stories that I think we'll get to hear about in heaven. But will you have any stories? Maybe not in the same way, maybe not the same kind. But will you have stories of God moved in my life? God did this. I trusted him. That counter to what made sense, I, I trusted the Lord and he used me. You see, we're going to ask David those stories or Moses or Abraham but you know what their question back will be, right? Oh, what about you? Did, you? did you follow the Lord? Did you trust him? Was our example an encouragement to you? I don't know. That's only a question that you and I will be able to answer ourselves. Do we follow the Lord? He closes out the chapter. Look at verse 39 and 40. He closes out the chapter. And notice, I don't want you to miss this. It'd be easy to. It'd be easy to just move on to uh, chapter 12. But look at verse 39 and 40. He said that these died having obtained a good testimony through faith, but they did not receive the promise. It's being talked about here. Listen, they died, but they are still connected to us. In what way? Well, let me read this to you. There's a guy named Harry Ironside commentator he says this in other words we may say of old testament saints that their souls were all safe in god's keeping 
Their eternal salvation was absolutely assured, but the work upon which all this rested had not yet taken place. That's the cross of Christ. They were, if we may so speak, saved on credit. In the cross, their responsibility was discharged, and now they, with us, are made perfect. Notice verse 40. The Bible says that they were not to be made perfect apart from us. This is the point. God has always worked that someone who enters his kingdom will get there by faith. Now for them, they looked forward to the cross. It had not yet happened. And so they were saved in a sense on credit. That when Jesus died on the cross, now that is what saved them. They, they trusted in God, though they didn't know all the pieces of the puzzle. And so you and I now, still by faith, we weren't there 2,000 years ago. We look back, and as we put our faith in Christ, we are also made perfect with them. You see, this ending is a perfect setup before the author gets into Hebrews 12. And Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 is the famous verse of running your own race, where he says, we have been surrounded. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. We have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses so that we might run our own race. And so the question for us tonight is, will we run our own race? We have the examples. We have everything needed in Christ. But now it's time to get out there and run. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this series and we thank you for this chapter. It so could have easily been left out, but we're so grateful that it's in, that you've preserved it all these years. Lord, that through the comfort and patience, endurance of the scriptures, of these examples, we might have hope. Lord, you tell us that these, these prophets who seem like giants to us, who seemed like we could never do what they did, but they were just like us. They were made of bone and skin and blood and all the rest. Lord, and they trusted you. And so God, here we live different lives. We have a different race set out before us. But God, we ask that you would help us to run our race well. Lord, we think of Paul who got to the end and he was able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Lord, would the same be able to be said of us on the day that you call us home or on the day that you come back? Lord, will we not be caught on the sidelines? Will we not be caught running the other way and backsliding but God, that you'd help us to press on and press forward for all the things that you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.